From Nine News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join Nine Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. He's actually shot my wife. A young mother dead. Knowing everything you know, we have no proof of that we know right. now. An investigation over before it began. That child was innocent. I feel like I failed him too. Got feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time there ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. Oh, I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? Tanner Wells was six years old on the day he was blamed for accidentally killing his mother, Jill Wells. When I first heard about this tragedy more than five years ago, he was a teenager. I pursued it for a time, conducting interviews, tracking people down, searching for documents. But members of Jill's family were concerned, worried about how Tanner might be affected by a news story on the shooting and the questions surrounding it. And so, reluctantly, I dropped it, determined to pick it up again when the time was right. That little boy is a grown man now, and he's aware of what we're doing. Still, as we look into this tragedy, Tanner is on our minds. Looking for answers in his mother's death means digging into one of the most painful days of his life. Today we're sitting down with Dr. Max Wachtel, a forensic psychologist, to talk about what we know, what Jill's sisters are concerned about, and what we ought to be thinking about as we consider what all of this might mean for Tanner now, 15 years after the gunshot that changed his life forever. Um, so I don't know what Nicole told you, but I'm working on uh, what I think is a really interesting and important story, but it's also a very challenging story. I wanted to talk to you about some of the issues that we might need to be thinking about as we're doing this. It's gonna take me a few minutes to walk you through it. Sure. In um, 2001, out on the eastern plains of Colorado, her concern all along was that Tanner, the son that she was raising now, was doing really well, and she was really worried about Just sort of disrupting his life, bringing this whole thing, bringing up this again. whole thing up again, etc. And so, so he's a young adult now, right? He's 21 now. With the age that he was at, and what. I would imagine his dad was telling him and the sheriffs and everybody around him um, and any therapy that he was in and all that, the, there is an extremely good chance that he believes that he killed his mom. Like he, like it, it, you know, it's not just like, did I, didn't I, I didn't, but my dad lied and I've been living with this lie. The, the kids are very um, yeah. suggestible. So he may, like it, that may rock his world. Like it, well, he may have come to terms with the fact that he killed his mom and then all of a sudden discovers through this investigation, like, wait, I didn't kill my mom. My dad was an evil person. You know, that, that could be really hard on him. I don't know if he, you know, if Tanner developed any kind of mental illnesses as a result of this, you know, things like anxiety or depression or or PTSD uh, that he may have worked through and is doing really well now. So that you know, so you have to you have to weigh like you know, so is it going to be well? You have to weigh a lot of things. You, know, you have to 
way the, the importance of the story, and it sounds like a really important story for a lot of reasons. With like it, you know, the is it could would it have the potential to make Tanner worse, you know, his, his mental health worse, or would it have the potential to maybe make him feel worse for a while, but um, give him an, a, you know, a different avenue to, to address it so that he actually feels better in the long run, even though it would be a really hard thing to go through. One thing that um, I should tell you, and again, this is, this is not, th this is secondhand, but there's a woman who uh, was good friends with Jill, the mother, mm -hmm. and before the dad died, he got stopped, he got arrested for driving while he was high, I think, or drunk, I can't remember which. And so the kids were taken and put in a temporary, as part of a dependency and neglect hearing. Uh -huh. And so the, the woman who had the kids for a while there has told a number of people, uh, she's never talked to me, obviously, one of the goals would be to get her on the record about this and eventually yeah. get her son on the record about this. She had a son that was Tanner's same age. So this would have been some years after the thing. Mm -hmm. She has told several people that her son told her that Tanner said, I don't think I shot my mom. Oh, really? Okay. So and yeah. that he actually said, my memory is of something whizzing right by my ear, which uh -huh. would lend credence to the idea that dad was standing behind yeah. him and actually. Okay, well that's, that so is an interesting new twist. Yeah. There's that little bit of a, God, I just don't remember it that way, but mm -hmm. you know how you have memories that someone tells you how it is, mm -hmm. and you're like, God, I don't remember it that way. Yeah, but, so. but that sounds possible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And, that's, and, and that but could be, yeah, so that could be what is going on with him. And that, like, there, um, that, there's a lot of research on how to... Um, how to do uh, you know, like a criminal interview with a, with a child, you know, like somebody who is alleged to have been sexually abused or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and, and uh, you know, what the research shows is that it, like a, like you can convince a kid that there is a bird up in the corner of the room. That, that's not actually there. Like, you know, do you, do you see the bird up there? And, the, um, you know, the, the kid might say no a couple of times, and then eventually, you know, yeah, I see that bird. And, that, and then, like, a year later, um, the kid will be reminded of that and, like, oh, yeah, there was a, a bird in that room when I was talking to the police officer or whatever. So the, I, that's, that's the, the level of suggestibility in kids. And, and even in adults, we, you know, the way that we remember things can be shaped by a lot of stuff. And if we're told the same thing over and over again, it gets solidified into our heads um, as being the truth, even if it's not. Right. Um, so it does sound like maybe in the back of his mind, this uh, something just doesn't quite add yeah. up. I mean, I'm also told that he also continues to idolize his father, which I have a hard time reconciling I mean they got tipped they got yanked out of the home yeah they had the home was being foreclosed on there were bill collectors coming I mean yeah. these kids had an unstable since since his dad's death he's had this very stable family in Missouri that has raised him and and so I just um, yeah I don't know there's, there's an there's a very interesting kind of psychological angle to this whole thing yeah. you know the you know what, like what the investigation, what your investigation could potentially do to him, what the shoddy investigation, you know, from two thousand one did to him and his brother, and um, yeah. So he would, I mean, if things bear out the way that you expect that they might, based on the investigation that you've already done, um, you know, the the whole family will have to figure out how to 
reconcile all of that information. Right. And um, you know, and, and there's there's still a way that he can not necessarily idolize his father, but you know, but have a, a more realistic outlook on well, who his father was. He could recognize that there was something going on with his father that wasn't right. Yeah. And that's bolstered by all the stuff that he actually has memories of mm-hmm. that happened later on. Right, right, as he, as he was older. You know, he would have been, been 14 when his dad died. So he would have seen his father go through another marriage and divorce. He would have seen all this financial tumult. He would have seen his, him and his brother getting yanked out of the house. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then he's also witnessed his, he's witnessed all the drug use. He's also lived through his mother being exhumed and you know I mean imagine that like having to go through something like that that would be horrible too. I get the feeling that this is like the elephant in the room at every family gathering. I'm sure. It's not spoken of and shouldn't Tanner know that the system failed his mother? I mean shouldn't he know that the original investigation was I mean shoddy is too nice a word for for how bad it was. Right. I guess that's a question maybe for you. Um. I don't, I don't, I mean, part of what intrigues me about the story, honestly, is that, it, you know, like it's, like you could make an argument, you know, this, this happened a long time ago, it's over, it's done, you know, the, the kids are doing okay. Um, they may not be perfect, but they're doing okay. The, um, you know, the, the prime suspect is not going to be brought to justice. You know, it's like, why bother? Um, but part of what is so interesting about it is, that it's like like the the futility of, of the whole thing, you know. The um, I mean, that seems like a, a really interesting part of the story to me. Like you know, this happened so long ago, and it, it was so shoddily handled um, that now, when something can really be done about it, nothing can be done about it. Like if they're just hit with this truth bomb and then they don't do anything with it, it can be you know, potentially devastating for the family. Um, but if they you know, follow through with talking about it as a group, talking about it in therapy on their own, you know, the, the, if they work on it after they really get the truth, then it becomes something that can be really freeing, which is kind of cool. One of the things in some of the documents that I have is, is, is a suggestion that right after the shooting and Jill's death that Tanner was put into therapy and that within a week his father ended that. Oh, wow. You know, ixnay on the therapy. Yeah. Um, again, well, that's sure something. Trying to get to the truth. Yeah, I mean, that's something to be explored still in terms of, you know, that's not something I could comfortably say to you. I know happened. Right. It's something that's been suggested. I need to look into it more. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of things like that. I need to look into more. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it would be really interesting if you could get those therapy notes from that first week. It was probably like one or two sessions or something. Yeah. That would be kind of kind of interesting. Everyone that I talked to, like the lawyer who was appointed his personal representative, you know, I talked to her last week and she's like, I think about this case a lot and I think about those boys a lot. Yeah. You know, I call, I talked to the CMT this morning that was 15 years ago and the first thing she said is, I think about this a lot. I mean, Mm -hmm. this, this is what, if you're going to remember something, this is the one you remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There, there are therapy cases that I remember from 15 years ago that uh, you know where there wasn't this kind of weirdness or intrigue and that so that yeah I I would have remembered this one yeah one of the things that um that is really unknowable is sort of the the psychological makeup of the father Mike Wells Mm -hmm. um one thing that the sister 
said to me, which just sent chills down my spine, was that many years before in the 70s, there was a shooting just like this that his brother was involved in. Oh, really? Charlie Wells and two friends in Missouri in 1978 went 15 miles out of town to go squirrel hunting mm -hmm. and um, with 22 caliber rifles, same, same kind of gun used in this case. Yeah. And um, there was an accident and one of the kids was shot in the neck and killed. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the small town sheriff immediate, basically immediately proclaimed it it was a, this was terrible accident. accident. Yeah. The coroner ruled it an accident to, within a day. And it very well may have been an accident. I mean, it actually, I don't see any suggestion that, the, that there was any financial gain. These were all like 17-year-old kids at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't see any, um, anything to suggest really that it wasn't an accident. Yeah. I need to take a break here and talk about that 1978 shooting. No charges were ever filed against anyone in that incident. Still, a number of people we've talked to have brought it up in light of what happened to Jill 23 years later. When I look at it, it was a perfect example of how a small town sheriff would handle this kind of a case. And mm -hmm. so if you leap ahead 23 years or whatever to this case, yeah. it's it happens in a rural place, in a place where the people don't live. It's investigated by a small town sheriff right. and basically everybody's word is accepted as truthful mm -hmm. and there's not any real scrutiny of the statements that are made you know but but assuming that nothing can be known about with with 100% certainty it's probably equally uncertain to know w whether Mike Wells thought about that you know how much he thought about right. that 1978 incident or anything like that but if you if you imagine the worst case scenario, which is the thing everybody is suspicious of, yeah. that Mike Wells killed his wife to solve his financial problems and maybe his, his relationship problems, and that he could have thought back, well, how could I do this? How could I yeah. do this and make it look yeah. like an accident? Yeah, that certainly fits. The, the only part that doesn't fit is, you know, why would you have one of your kids with you? Oh, well, I guess, I guess the reason is you need to, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, no one's going to charge a six-year-old. That's true. That's a good point. Because, yeah. I mean, he could have just, you know, made the excuse. Like, you you know, the, as, as I was setting the gun down, it, you know, it, it went off. But the, it's easier to say, my kid did it. The first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, is this guy a psychopath? Like, a, somebody who, who sees others as a means to an end, not as, like, human beings. Um, can be, you know, cold and calculating. You know, the, they could be, uh, you know, fairly unemotional. Mm -hmm. Not, uh, you know, not very empathic. Like, you know, he can't put his his, you know, can't put himself in his wife's place and think how horrible it would be to be shot and killed by your husband. Or can't put himself in his kid's place and think about um, how 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 messed up they would be from something like this. Uh, a substance abuser can also have the, the same kinds of issues. Uh, somebody who's uh, you know, maybe abusing substances, really depressed, um, just you know, sees this as um, as the the last means, you know, like a like a last ditch effort to get out of trouble, um, like financial trouble in this case. You know, that that would usually come with some with lots of remorse afterward, though, which he may have had. Uh, you know, maybe he 
you know, upped his use, his drug use after that, and was horribly remorseful of what happened. And well, he died from an overdose of methadone. Oh. So. So was he taking that because he, was he like in a methadone maintenance program? I think or? he probably was. Okay. Um, it's hard to overdose on methadone. Yeah. You gotta take a lot of it. Um, he had a couple of DUIs, um, you know, which may suggest just always needing something to help you get by, I don't mm -hmm. know. Like if you overdose on methadone, is that like you're committing suicide? Like can you accidentally do it? You can accidentally do it, but the, it, it would be, like if he were in a methadone maintenance program for an opioid addiction, um, it would be extremely difficult to accidentally overdose on methadone. Um, he would have had to be on it for a while, earned enough privileges that he, you know, because usually, you know, like when, when you start, I used to work in a methadone program, that when you start going there, um, you have to go every day to get a single dose. Um, and then I think that, you know, most of them are closed on Sundays. So on Saturday, they, you know, they, you take your dose there and then they give you an extra dose. So if you took that, um, you probably still wouldn't overdose from that. But eventually you earn privileges where you get a six pack. So you, you take one dose when you're there and you, you take the other six with you. And it, so if you drank all of those at once, you could probably purposefully kill yourself. Um, so if you were in a maintenance methadone program, methadone maintenance program, um, and he overdosed on methadone, the, the chances of it being purposeful are incredibly high. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned whether he could be a psychopath. I also wonder if he could have been not a psychopath, but just so desperate that yeah, and this seemed like the only way out. Yeah, those, um, those are, I, I think those are, you know, the, those are two equally likely. Scenarios? Scenarios, yeah. Um, substance abuse combined with just lots of other desperation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's why it would be interesting to find out. More like about a, his. Yeah, find out like a, what, was the, what was the impact of all of this on him? Like did, did he seem fine? Um, mm -hmm. or, or did he seem really messed up by it? Did he? I know that um, <laughs> was really interesting. The EMT I talked to yesterday said something along these lines. Um, that he was crying and carrying on and throwing up at the scene and that she she didn't use the word act, but I could tell that what she was thinking now in her mind at the time was, is this an act? Oh yeah. And um, a good friend of the mother's um, said that, that he sobbed through the entire memorial service and that the whole time she was sitting there thinking, is he really genuinely grieving? Yeah. Or is this an act? Right. Or is he, is it some of both that he did mm -hmm. this and now he's realizing what he did right. and grieving, you know, it's like. Did it start as an act and then he came to that, the realization of the like, horror of it. Yeah. And so it's like, again, um, the, the fact that so many people that don't know each other all basically had the same question in their minds mm -hmm. immediately is part of what's fascinating to me about this. I mean, yeah. this EMT has never talked with any of these people, ne ever. Yeah. She went to the scene, there was nothing to do medically. Mm -hmm. She was, so. And she still has the same kinds of questions that everybody else does. Right, and 100 miles away in Woodland Park, this woman's friends are all saying the same thing. Wow. And in Missouri, the sisters are saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And 
Yeah. I mean, that's part of what's fascinating to me. Yeah. Suspicions do not, you know, a crime make, but the fact that so many people who haven't talked to each other yeah. or even knew that, that, each, that, that each other existed. I mean, the second EMT today said, she was an EMT and a victim's advocate, so she said she got to the scene, she said it was obvious there was no medical aid that could be rendered. Right. So she said, I put on my victim's advocate hat and I went inside and, and was with the boys mm-hmm. while everything was, this happened outside obviously. Yeah. And she said, just my first glance around the house, she said I had this weird feeling. Like just that quickly, mm-hmm. you know, before, before she knew that the sheriff declared it an open and shut. Right situation before you before know she talked to anybody just looking around it's clear that the insurance companies had suspicions because they kept sending this, it took the sheriff two months to produce this two-page report mm-hmm. and so the insurance companies like every week were basically saying anything looking weird here because we're gonna have to write this big check if not you uh-huh. know and obviously the insurance companies have a financial stake in yes. what the truth is yeah but at the same time they were like you know I'm sure the buy-in of the life insurance four and a half weeks beforehand does Yeah, yeah. I mean, that does that. Things like that happen, and accidents still happen. But it's right. that's that is suspicious. It's, it's also one. another thing that's suspicious. I hadn't thought about this in this way, just till we're having this conversation. But one of the in the underwriting process, somebody sent a note that said, "What's the? Why does she's a part-time registered nurse? Why does she need this much insurance?" Mm-hmm. So the answer was, well, she and her husband co-own this business. Right. He has a lot of income, blah, blah, blah. And he's going to be applying for the same kind of policy. So just your initial reactions to hearing all this. Um, I, I mean, I want to see the story, <laughs> for sure. It's, it's fascinating. It sounds pretty suspicious. Honestly, from from what you're saying, it's you know it's hard to, to know for sure because I'm only getting you know your your view of it. But it, it it sounds like there's something there that needs to be looked at. And as far as doing it, you know, with these younger, I mean, not as young as they were, but yeah, people like how in your mind like weighing those factors. How right. Do you weigh those? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good question. So you know, so thinking about the. Um, <coughs> You know how interesting the story would be, and, and how helpful it would be to the general public. That's you know I think, I think that's, you know I think you've got a good case there. So that you know, so <clears throat> and then, you know, is it, is it going to be good for the family, or is it going to be bad for the family, and specifically these two kids, and really Tanner, I think is probably the most at risk, because um, his brother is. Yeah, he was young enough that, that I think a lot of this is just not going to be... I mean, he, he may be a little weirded out by some of the attention that he gets from the story, but the, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it would be really that detrimental, p- potentially detrimental to him. Um, you know, as a psychologist, we always think of the, um, you know, the, the overriding ethical principle that we always have in our mind is, is always, you know, do no, above all else, do no harm. Mm-hmm. 
and if there's the potential to do harm, um, you know, the, how, you know, how can we minimize that? Um, because a lot of times, especially with like PTSD or trauma work, uh, people get worse for a while in therapy and before they start getting better. And that's mm -hmm. part, that's just part of the natural process. So, you, you know, for a while you are kind of doing harm to somebody and possibly even putting them at risk of, um, you know, suicide or drug abuse or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, I I see this as 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 potentially you know, being harmful to Tanner. I, I don't think you know like permanently harmful. I, you know probably not any more permanently harmful than what he has already been through. Um, I think it would be a, a tough thing for him to go through. You know, while you're putting the story together, I think it, you know, once it comes out, it will be hard. The, um, I think if they if the family is uh, you know does it right and you know and maybe you could you know, kind of help them you know kind of guide them through what you know what that mean what doing it right means in terms of you know getting the, the kind of therapeutic support that they would need um, and you know it would have the potential to be pretty helpful or at least it would have the potential for him to kind of get through it relatively unscathed and honestly that that's kind of how you know like, like therapy for PTSD works is that you know the you uh, you essentially force the person to address the trauma that they've experienced um, over and over and over again in in a therapeutic kind of way, and then it eventually loses its power, it loses as much of its power as, as possible over the person. You know, the, it kind of it, it sort of turns it from being something that is you know that may be controlling their lives to something that is more like you know, a, a, a nuisance, like, it, you know, like, it, like it's something bad that happened to them that they can handle. Right. It's something that happened to them that's no longer who they are. Yeah. Right? yeah. Is that the goal? Exactly. Yeah. Next time on Blame. <laughs> Reporters asking questions strike out all the time. You've reached the voicemail box. Even when you get someone, sometimes you get nothing. You sure I was there? But the more we ask about the Jill Wells case, the more people come forward. You know, you get that one aha moment. Some talking for the first time. The sad thing is, is that it's possible that a child could accidentally shoot their parent. And the more they have to say. But when you walk onto a scene and it just doesn't feel right. And now, 15 years later, it still doesn't feel right. You got to pay attention to those things. The more we learn about the day Jill Wells died. I just thought it was the perfect place in Lincoln County to come and commit a murder. And who might have been to blame? Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is the producer and editor. And I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on 9news.com slash blame. <laughs> <laughs>